This is Prayer Mid-Pandemic, a podcast to encourage and sharpen the church through telling stories of Christians whose faith were shaped by sickness and by praying with fellow believers around the world. I'm Morgan Lee. The man who would become St. Cyprian of Carthage was born in North Africa around 200 AD. Cyprian did not convert to Christianity until later in his life, but became a bishop shortly after his conversion. In his 10 years as bishop, Cyprian led his church through a period of intense persecution, a devastating plague, and another round of persecution that ultimately ended his life. He was the bishop of Carthage in a really turbulent time. It was about the middle of the third century, which historically is considered to be the crisis of the third century. Uh, So he's literally the bishop during a crisis. It was a time when Christians faced renewed persecution from the Roman Empire, um, rounds of just a deadly plague, which I know we're going to talk about, and also just a lot of church dissension and division and schisms that would uh, ultimately lead to his, his more famous writings. Franklin Norton teaches Latin and church history at Covenant School, a classical Christian school in Huntington, West Virginia. But before that, Cyprian was from a, a pretty wealthy family in uh, North Africa, and he practiced law most of his adult life. And he didn't become a Christian until he was in his 40s. Uh, it was around 246 AD. And uh, it's, it's interesting because just a couple years after that, he, he became bishop. Um, he was elected bishop uh, for Carthage, and it was never easy. His tenure was, was pretty short, about 10 years before he was ultimately martyred by the Roman Empire. I'm really curious about his conversion story, especially since it happened so much later in his life. What do we know about it? We know that he was unsatisfied with secular culture and secular lives, particularly being a a lawyer. Um, And he was a pretty well-known and respected orator um, of the law, of rhetoric, and he had a classical education. And so he was pretty elite, uh, also just coming from a wealthy family. But there was this dissatisfaction uh, about that, that there was just this emptiness. Specifically, he's influenced by Tertullian, who uh, was one of the first Latin Christian writers that we know of that was really um, has shaped our our church history and, and Christianity in the Western culture. Um, so he was really affected by Tertullian's teaching, um, and he also ended up just becoming more and more interested in the Christian faith as a means of understanding life um, until he finally did convert in, in 246 and he was baptized. And from then on, he was he was all in. So I'm curious if we can just talk about some of the big theological ideas that animate Cyprian's work and writings. During his time, probably the most controversial of his letters and and really his tenure was surrounding these persecutions. So, so after the DCN um, persecutions under Emperor Decius, he actually has fled and he's, he's in hiding during these persecutions and Emperor Decius is essentially forcing all the Christians hands. And he is asking that they would submit to the Roman gods. And so there are a lot of apostasies in this time. There are a lot of um, what they call the lapsed or the fallen. 
And so when he comes back from hiding after a couple of years, uh, the fallen are trying to re-enter the church. You know, they say that they were forced into it or pressured into it out of fear. Um, and so there's this huge debate as to whether or not to allow the lapsed back into the church and, and what types of penance they need or what types of, um, if there is any church discipline or even if they are allowed. And so that became a very big topic in the, in the Roman church at that time. And Cyprian landed on the fact that they should be allowed back in, that there should be a form of reconciliation for the fallen Christians, for those who were apostate. And so he wrote this treatise, um, which we'll get to later with Treaty 7, but his most famous is the Treaties 1, which is on the unity of the church. And so probably the most important theological contribution that Cyprian made was this idea that the church is is a universal, global, one church um, under one Christ and ultimately should be together. There shouldn't be these schisms and, and essentially detractors of uh, that they should all be in one mind and one spirit. Obviously, what you're talking about with regards to theological issues and ministry issues really define a lot of his time at Bishop, mm-hmm. but... We also mentioned that there is this devastating plague that also occurs. Right. What happened? What was going on? It broke out around exactly the time that he was elected bishop. So we first start seeing accounts of it in 249 CE, and it lasted uh, for a long time. Uh, it lasted until 262. And this plague at its height, it had a recorded 5,000 deaths per day in Rome. And um, so it was just this catastrophic, devastating disease. Um, As far as what the disease was, uh, historians are kind of unclear about it, but we know that from Cyprian's accounts and from Cyprian's deacon Pontius's accounts, it was a contagious disease and it was characterized by intense fatigue, fever, hemorrhaging, infection. Um, A lot of historians have landed on that it is probably like an Ebola type disease um, that just completely spread across the Roman Empire and really um, almost caused the the collapse of the Roman Empire as a whole. One of the things that struck out to me when I was doing some reading about this plague was this was kind of where a lot of the narratives that we think about today with regards to how Christians have responded to disease over the past come from, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. of these stories of Christians helping the sick and burying the dead and acting really courageously. Right. There are actually some instances where historically Christian societies, places with a high Christian population actually saw a bit less death. And it's not because Christians weren't affected, and and Cyprian makes a point to say that this affects both Christians and non-Christians alike, but it was the fact that in Christian populations, they were helping each other. And so the healthy were helping the sick, and if the healthy got sick from helping the sick, then the healed sick would help the helper. And it was just this continuous sort of pouring into each other. And that was what was also really attractive to to pagan culture and, and non-Christians, which contributed to a large conversion in in this time. Well, let's bring it back to Cyprian. So the, the plague is moving through Carthage. Right. And what happens to him? Cyprian really, I think, 
took this in stride in a way, which which is at first odd because when you're reading Treaty Seven, uh, De Mortalitates, which is on the mortality, when you're reading that, it's almost as if you could almost take it in the way that he is being sort of flippant about it, but but really he takes it in stride by just saying, "Be courageous, be brave. We are ready for this," and and he really is more caring for Christians um, and saying this, we were made for this. We were made for this moment and really encouraging the church through that time. That was what his role was. um, And what he just kind of, that's sort of what he's most famous for now. I mean, the plague historically is called the Cyprian plague now uh, just because of his reaction to it and his historical records of it. um, He kind of defined the moment. For Christians. Can you read some of the writings that really stick out to you, Franklin? Yes, absolutely. That's my favorite part. So I, are I, you going to read them in Latin or in uh, English? No. <laughs> I'll read them in English just for uh, understanding sake. But uh, from De Mortalitate, okay. which again means on the mortality, he is specifically addressing Christians. Um, and really, a lot of it echoes the encouragement of James in, in his epistle, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. So Cyprian echoes this in his De Mortalitates. Uh, one of my favorite quotes that he, he writes to his followers is, What a grandeur of spirit it is to struggle with all the powers of an unshaken mind against so many onsets of devastation and death. What sublimity to stand erect amid the desolation of the human race and not to lie prostrate with those who have no hope in God, but rather to rejoice and to embrace the benefit of the occasion, that in thus bravely showing forth our faith and by suffering endured, going forward to Christ by the narrow way that Christ trod, we may receive the reward of his life and faith according to his own judgment. So the passage you just read obviously feels a lot like a pep talk of sorts (laughs) and trying to rally everyone's spirits during a really dark time. Mm -hmm. Do we have any examples of Cyprian's writing when he himself is maybe feeling a little bit more depressed or in despair? You know, he doesn't really allow that to be seen if it is. He always kind of, and I think that might just be where he has a rhetoric background um, and such an extensive law background that he really works hard to be the authority. And I think that's what is is something that is to be respected as a church leader, that he really felt, I think, the need to be strong um, and the need to, to not seem weak. Um, cause you don't really see him ever faltering. And, and that was a, that was a really large theme of his writings as well, was that these types of trials, these types of, uh, plagues and devastations are what test your faith and spirit. And for him, it was, and this was a, a pretty common, uh, theme in the Roman empire. I'm pretty sure Lucretius writes, um, way, way, way before this about how plagues reveal human character. Does the church later on end up using the writings of Cyprian and others to encourage itself or to inspire it during times of hardship or in future plagues? So I see it is common, and I've actually, even now, I've seen a lot of articles in papers about Cyprian, just about the current coronavirus pandemic. And really, he is 
I will say that he isn't super mainstream, um, especially for Protestants. <laughs> um, you know, so you have to do a lot of clarifying about who you're talking about when you name drop him. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it's not, I actually was texting a friend earlier and I was like, yeah, I'm talking about Cyprian and, and the crisis of the third century. And they just sent a bunch of question marks. Um, so a lot of people don't know who Cyprian is. And it is partly because, you know, after him, you have Jerome and Augustine who are really big voices in the church and they've kind of spilled over into uh, Protestant and just other Western Christianity circles. Uh, but Cyprian has kind of stayed in within the Catholic church. So one of the craziest things about this whole story, right, is that just a little bit over a decade after he becomes a Christian, he endures all this kind of infighting that's going on with the church at the time and tries to advise, lives through a plague, gives encouragement. There's this second wave of persecution that comes up and ends his life. What do we know about what happened? Right. So his death is, of course, tragic, but he's really been preparing for it his whole, well, his whole life, his whole Christian life. He's been preparing for this. Um, So, of course, under this new emperor, Emperor Valerian, there is a, another round of persecution, uh, very similar to the DCN persecutions. And he takes it again in stride. And I think, too, just with his writings on the plague and with his writings on the unity of the church, he again just sees this as another test of his faith. And he will not waver. He will not back down. And so he is in 258. AD, he is sent away, he's exiled, and um, eventually, uh, very shortly after, he is put to death. And actually, there are some witness accounts of his trial and execution, and so there's this really beautiful moment where, so he is under the proconsul Galerius Maximus, and Galerius Maximus says, are you Thascius Cyprianus, which was Cyprian's full name, um, his Latin name, and Cyprian just says, I am. And Galerius says, the most sacred emperors have commanded you to conform to the Roman rites, to which Cyprian just says, I refuse. And so later on, um, after they just realize they're not going to move this guy, they're not going to get him to change, they're not going to get him to conform, they say, it is the sentence of this court that Thascius Cyprianus be executed with the sword. And Cyprian replies, thanks be to God. And so it's this really beautiful, courageous, and brave moment um, that Cyprian, again, is the example of just unwavering faith, no matter what. Um, so, so much so that whenever they say, you're going to die by the sword, he just says, thanks be to God. Wow. Franklin, what would you say that the church needs to hear from Cyprian today? First and foremost, one of the most important things that I have learned from this is that number one, it's called the Cyprian plague that Cyprian Christians defined the moment in history that all historians, not just church history, not just uh, Catholic mm. or even refer to this as the Cyprian plague or the plague. of and, and do we know when they started referring to it as like that? I, I don't really know. I, it was pretty much, right after. Uh, I think it, I think you don't really see it ever being called anything else. Yeah. When you 
when we got in touch about um, this whole thing, I remember just being surprised to see that there was, it was actually named after a church figure and found it really intriguing because I hadn't realized that he was the reason right, yeah, <laughs> that we called it that. Because of his writings and his response. And, and I think more specifically, just the way the church responded, because really that's what it is. His writing is just a reflection of the church and encouragement of the church. And so I would say that as a Christian today, just to see how we could define this moment, how this could be our moment in history in the same way that Cyprian and, and the early church defined that moment, we could take this and we could be Christ-like and we can be loving our neighbors in whatever way that looks like right now. And that, that could be our moment in, in today's society. Uh, maybe and maybe one day they, people will look back and say, "Look at those Christians, um, how they loved each other." Um, and actually, that was something that you know there were pagan uh, rulers and, and authors that would mention Christians during this time. They'd just say, "Look at them! Look at those Christians that you know they won't waver. That they they keep helping the sick, even non Christians, even people out of their club." And people noticed the Christian response, and so I would say that. Christians today would love to hear Cyprian. Of course, just reading all of Treaty 7 is so refreshing to just see that we've been here before. We've been here um, a few times in history. And just to see how we can take this moment and we can love each other. And that can be, just that love can be countercultural. And just that love can be supernatural. Thank you so much, Franklin, for this really moving story. Thank you for having me. Here's the latest coronavirus news in the world and church for the week of May 18th. After two months, Samaritan's Purse has closed its field hospital in Cremona, Italy. More than 100 specialists were deployed to the hospital, which treated a total of 281 people. The ministry's presence was warmly received by locals. According to Evangelical Focus, an Italian news channel did a special highlighting the efforts of the organization, which is known there as the Samaritani. The government must lift a blanket ban on religious services in the next eight days, ruled France's highest administrative court on Monday. The Council of State described this restriction as, quote, a damage that is serious and manifestly illegal. While some parts of the country's lockdown have been softened in recent weeks, the ban on gatherings and houses of worship had remained. The majority of Americans who believe in God believe the coronavirus pandemic is a message from God, according to the findings of a poll from the University of Chicago Divinity School and the Associated Press, Nork Center for Public Affairs Research. The poll found that 62% of Americans who believe in God strongly or somewhat feel that the virus is a sign from God telling humanity to change. 43% of evangelical Protestants strongly believe this is the case. 55% of these same Americans believe at least somewhat that God will protect them from being infected. 43% of evangelical Protestants also strongly believe this is the case. Because of the global nature of this crisis, we believe it's important to hear from our sisters and brothers in Christ from around the world. Hi, my name is Shori Sanagawa, and I live in Nagoya City, Japan, and I work at this chicken wing restaurant in Japan. Many restaurants and stores are closed because of the COVID-19, and 
similar industries are having a hard time because of it. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you listen to our prayers all the time. I especially want to pray for abroad students in Japan. A lot of them are Nepalese, Vietnamese, and Chinese. And they are students, but they also work at restaurants and stores a lot. But because of this situation, they don't work. And they tell me that they have to pay for the rent, but they have to pay for tuitions. And they feel homesick because they can't go back home. And they are worried. Uh, not only them, but a lot of single parents who have to work but babysit at the same time. And God, please help Japanese churches and bilingual churches so we know how to help one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, but also help the community as a whole. And please help us so that we we're not controlled by the circumstances or emotion around the bus. Uh, circumstances or emotion around the bus, but trust in your sovereignty in the midst of this time of uncertainty. And we love you in Jesus' name. Pray. Amen. Prayer Amid Pandemic is produced by myself, Morgan Lee, along with Matt Linder, Mike Cosper, and Eric Petrick. Please help us spread the word about Prayer Amid Pandemic by sharing about it on social media or recommending it to your friends. The best way for you to help, though, is by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. If you have feedback, please send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com or on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We'll see you soon.